Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Today, we're bringing you something a little bit different. Irish Times journalist Rosita Boland reads an article she wrote about Elizabeth O'Kelly, the little-known Irish philanthropist who left €30 million to charity in her will. In the piece published in the Irish Times on Saturday, December 22nd, Rosita looks back at Elizabeth O'Kelly's past to reveal a life of privilege and tragedy, generosity and anonymity. Now, here's Rosita Boland to tell you more about the orphan who became a philanthropist, Elizabeth O'Kelly. One day in October 1924, a young French woman who had recently been widowed took out some black-bordered sheets of notepaper and wrote a letter to her closest surviving relative, a sister-in-law in Dublin. Alice Marie Victorine Hubert Sykes was writing from Tours, France. The letter was a cri de corps. We must be her two mothers, as she has but ourselves in the world. I am glad to feel you are there if anything happened to me. Now don't say you are old. This must not be said. If you feel young and try to be young, you are young. You really are the only person in the world who I could trust to leave her to. The recipient of the letter was Annette Kathleen Sykes, who lived at 39 Lower Leeson Street in Dublin and was then aged 63. Her only sibling... English-born Otway Richard Sykes was the now-deceased husband of Alice Sykes. She had a baby niece she had not yet seen, Elizabeth Annette Alice Sykes, who had been born on 14 January of that year and whose second name was a tribute to her aunt in Ireland. At the time of writing this letter, Alice Sykes had tuberculosis, an illness she correctly feared might kill her. It was this fear that made her implore her much older sister-in-law to be a mother to her baby daughter, should she not survive the infection that was virulent throughout France at that time. Less than two years later, Alice Sykes was dead. Her daughter was brought to her aunt in Ireland, a country she was to make her primary home for the rest of her long life, all 92 years of it. Elizabeth O'Kelly, as the former Elizabeth Sykes was known as at the time of her death, died peacefully on 11 December 2016 in Stradbally, County Leash. It was only in October this year that her name suddenly blazed into public consciousness. The news broke that she had left a remarkable €30 million to charity. Five charities were to benefit equally from her legacy. The Irish Cancer Society, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the Irish Heart Foundation, the Irish Kidney Association and the Irish Society for Autism. It was an astonishing act of personal generosity that will benefit many citizens of this country. Elizabeth who? was the question everyone was asking, of this woman whose name had never been in the public domain during her lifetime. In 1926, Annette Sykes, then 65 and unmarried, took in her two-year-old orphaned niece. It was an act of familial love that must also have been daunting, 
given the vast age gap between them and the fact she had no experience of raising children. In the 1920s, trauma in children was not recognised. Today, it would be evident that losing both parents before the age of three and then being moved to a different country, culture and language would be a highly traumatic experience for a small child. Much later in life, Elizabeth wrote a short unpublished essay about her earliest memories of Dublin. When the French nurse handed me over to my aunt, she returned to her native land, and then I had to learn to speak English as I was just starting to speak French. That set me back a lot, and I did not start speaking again for several years. At the Leeson Street house, there was staff, or servants as they were called by Elizabeth in her diaries. There was a cook, a parlour maid, a scullery maid, a chauffeur and a children's nurse. It was a privileged existence. There are photographs of her as a delighted child in long plaits, holding a leopard cub and another with her arm around a chimpanzee, pictures taken at London Zoo. There were piano lessons and French and Italian lessons. There were summer visits to the Wheeler Cuff family at their vast Lyra estate in County Kilkenny, now a luxury hotel. There are photographs of the chauffeur holding the car door open for her, of being among young people picnicking on parterres of various Anglo-Irish period houses, of holidaying in a number of different places abroad, her tall, thin aunt always beside her. Elizabeth called Annette Sykes auntie. She'd a dog called Captain who once stole and ate an apple cake she had made and who loved to jump onto her bed and who she walked in St Stephen's Green and Herbert Park. She accompanied her aunt to daily mass. Every evening they took turns reading to each other. Elizabeth found her long, wiry hair a challenge to manage and the two of them once made a special novena together for her hair. They frequently went to the Savoy Cinema, to the Abbey and Gaiety and Gate to the RDS to hear lectures and to the Central Catholic Library on Merrion Square to borrow books. They liked to take tea together at the Automobile Club on Dawson Street. We know all this because after Elizabeth O'Kelly's death, it emerged that eight boxes of her papers were left to Maynooth University. They are held at the university's special collections and archives section of its library, and although they are not yet available to the general public as they still have to be catalogued, the Irish Times was permitted to see them. The boxes contain enough material on which to base a substantial book-length work of biography. They hold diaries, letters, estate papers, legal documents, photographs, books and newspaper cuttings. There is an additional, smaller archive of papers at Trinity College. Elizabeth kept a diary more or less consistently from the ages of 13 to 20, Four of these are in Maynooth and four in Trinity. Sometimes she wrote her diary in English and sometimes in French. In 1940, Elizabeth was 16. That Easter, she mused on what the priest had said at a service on Holy Thursday. He said that everything passes and this congregation will be dead and gone in another 70 years. I wonder if I will be alive then. I am now 16 and in that time... I would be 86. It would be the year 2010. I wonder if I live to be that age if I will remember what he said. I may be dead by then. She was to live another 76 years after she wrote that entry. By the age of 17, she was attending a technical school where she learned cookery, dressmaking and food preservation. In December that year, she writes, 
Auntie and I went to the bank after breakfast and I got my first checkbook. Sad, I think, because it makes me no longer a child. Also that month, on St Stephen's Day, a man named Wilson, not his real name, makes his first appearance in her diary. After lunch today, Wilson called. He had been sent to ask me if I would go to the Ward Hunt Ball tonight. I said I would be delighted, then rushed off on my bicycle to Miss Casey to get my opera cloak. Wilson called for me at 9.30 and I had a most enjoyable evening. I did not get home next morning till 5.30. Elizabeth went to several dances in the following year. She loved to dance and had different evening dresses made up. One favourite was a white net dress with blue love knots. These dances are ruining me as I think of nothing else, she writes at one point that year. In December, she writes, I do wish Wilson would come to see me. I do want some fun. I feel very sorry there is no prospect of any fun or dances. At the back of this 1942 diary, on a blank, undated page, she writes, I wonder what 1943 will foretell. Will I be married? And will the war come to an end? I keep thinking of... There is a name that has crossed out. I hope I am not in love. I would like to put down some of my impressions, but I'm afraid of people reading them. Seventy-six years later, this reporter read those words in a silent library archive and felt a wrench for the young girl who had written them. In January the following year, she writes, Auntie and I went downtown and met Wilson in Grafton Street. Auntie asked him to come to tea this afternoon and he said he would. He never turned up. I was very disappointed. It is funny to meet him today, as I had made a resolution for the new year to try and forget him and put him out of my mind completely, and after tomorrow I will have to start again, which makes it harder. On 24 July, she wrote, I do wish I could forget about Wilson. I made that my promise last New Year's Day, but I have not been able to keep it up. I dreamt the whole of last night about him. I know I am quite mad. On 14 January 1944, Elizabeth wrote, Today is my birthday and I am 20. I feel sad. My life is passing. I have done nothing in the time. Auntie gave me a handbag and some bonbons. Those were to be the last birthday gifts Annette Sykes, then 83, would ever give her niece. Less than a month later, she had a heart attack in the night and was anointed. Nurses were engaged to attend to her around the clock. 7 February. I sat in terror all the afternoon that Auntie should have another heart attack. I was terrified the whole day. 10 February. We had an awful night. I thought Auntie was dying. I cannot write anything about it. 14 February. Crowds of visitors the whole day. 16 February. Auntie died at nine o'clock last night. The handwriting for the entry on 17 February is uncharacteristically shaky and untidy. The coffin was taken to St Kevin's for the night. 18 February. The funeral. I lived on my willpower today. 19 February. I don't remember what I did. There are no more entries until this anguished one on 16 March. This loneliness is terrible. It is at night time I feel it most, having no one to speak to. I feel it is growing more as the pace of time grows more every day since the funeral. I miss my aunt more as time passes. It is terrible. As Elizabeth was not yet 21, she was made a ward of court 
and her guardian named as Lewis Herbert Winkworth of Westminster in London. Her aunt's considerable estate, which included ground rents of various Dublin streets, was to be held in trust for her until she turned 21 or married. That summer, Elizabeth's diary records a large number of lunches and teas and suppers. Lords, ladies, countesses and a baroness were frequently calling upon the house at 39 Lower Leeson Street. Today, Angel's Lap Dancing Club is located in the basement of the same building. There is no further mention of Wilson. It appears many conversations were being had between these titled callers and Elizabeth about her future. The diary entries stop in November. Elizabeth Sykes came of age on 14 January 1945 and inherited her aunt's estate the same day. On 9 February, this newspaper carried the following notice. The engagement is announced and the marriage will shortly take place between Major J.W. O'Kelly, OBE, Ballygoran Park, Maynooth and Elizabeth, only daughter of the late Otway Richard Sykes and Alice Sykes of Yorkshire. On 14 March of that year, Elizabeth married widower and retired army officer Major John William O'Kelly. She was 21, he was 62. The couple lived together in O'Kelly's large house at Ballygoran, County Kildare. They took several long cruises in the following years, cruises during which Elizabeth frequently kept a diary again. Once she married, she stopped the practice of routinely writing daily. The O'Kellys travelled by ship to South America, Canada, South Africa, Japan, Malaysia and several other countries. They both travelled on British passports. In January 1952, they were sailing to Cape Town and had just passed the Cape Verde Islands. It was John O'Kelly's habit to take afternoon naps while his wife played deck quoits and table tennis and shuffleboard. There was dancing after dinner and John and I watched it. No one asked me to dance. They may have thought I did not want to dance when they did not see John dancing with me. In January 1954, she took a three-month voyage with a woman friend to Vancouver. She did not always travel with her husband, but when she didn't, she always travelled with some female companion. My birthday today. I am 30 years of age. Youth is gone. John O'Kelly died in 1962, aged 80. Elizabeth was 37. She was never to remarry and, like her late aunt, did not have children. On her husband's death, she inherited a large number of stocks and shares, investments that were later to make up a substantial percentage of her donations to charity. After his death, she sold the Ballygoran House in 1964. She travelled for long periods to Argentina and Uganda at this time. In the late 1960s, she bought a house at Knockallan in Leakslip, County Kildare, where she lived for a time. She took up membership of the Kildare Archaeological Society and the Irish Georgian Society. Then, sometime in the 1970s, she came across Chomley Derring Chomley Harrison. I think they met through mutual friends, possibly through the Irish Georgian Society. They would have known some of the same people, says Father Connor Harper. Father Harper is a now-retired Jesuit priest who first met Elizabeth at Emo Court in the 1970s. British-born Chomley Daring Chomley Harrison, who was married three times, had bought the Emo Court estate in County Leash from the Jesuits in 1969. 
Emo is one of the few private houses James Gandon, who was the architect of both the forecourts and the custom house, designed. It had been acquired in the 1930s by the Jesuits for their Irish novitiate. Chomley Harrison, a former highly successful stockbroker and member of the London Stock Exchange, also had inherited wealth. He bought and renovated the 300-acre estate and moved into the main house. Sometime in the 1970s, he rented Emo's dower house to Elizabeth. Maura is one of the few people who knew all three well, Elizabeth, Chomley Harrison and Father Harper. She does not want to give her real name. I wouldn't want people wondering if I was only friendly with her because I knew she was wealthy, she says, by way of explanation. Maura clearly recalls Elizabeth's years at Emo. She loved the place. I think one of the reasons she rented it was because she had all this beautiful old antique furniture and they were big pieces. There's not every house you could put that furniture into. I think it was family furniture. The two of them often had tea together and sometimes dinner. She was a lovely lady and a real lady, but she never spent anything on herself. She lived a very simple life, Maura says. You'd never think she had money. I'd say that coat she had, an old tweed coat, she probably had it for 40 years. She used to go out into the grounds of Emo with a basket in the mornings and collect sticks for the fire. She never bought in bulk. It'd be a couple of potatoes, a couple of tomatoes, an onion. She only bought what she needed. Maura says Elizabeth loved her Emo garden. In the Maynooth archive, there are albums full of photographs of the lovely garden she tended at Emo, filled with bright flowers. One winter, when Elizabeth fell ill with pneumonia and had to be hospitalised, Maura went with her. The nurse was talking to her, and I could hear, because there was only the curtain around the bed between us. The nurse asked who she should put down as next of kin, and Elizabeth said, Nobody. I'll always remember that. The diaries Elizabeth kept sporadically after her marriage were usually in lined school exercise copybooks. Not being formal diaries, they didn't have pre-printed dates on them, and as she did not always date her entries, it's sometimes unclear when exactly she wrote what. But sometime in 1977, when she was 53, she wrote this. I suppose I will continue to go on the remainder of my life, not knowing what I am meant to do. I have ceased a long time ago, asking what I should do with my life. Life would just be too easy if one knew. I have learned to accept this. At Emo, Elizabeth never spoke to Maura about her early life, or her years in Dublin, or about her late husband. He was dead a long time by then, she says. She never spoke about her family to me, Father Harper says. I did know she'd been made a ward of court because of some family money. She was never boastful about her wealth. I was aware that she regularly visited her accountant and solicitor and that she kept track of her investments because she told me she did. She was very careful about her investments, but it wasn't for her own ends. She felt a duty that she had to take care of this money to pass it on. At Maynooth, there is a thick black ledger in which Elizabeth carefully and methodically over decades entered the names of various stocks and shares and their dividends. Chomley Harrison and Elizabeth chatted on the phone most days and regularly had afternoon tea or an evening drink together. In 1994, Chomley Harrison made the decision to gift the Emo estate to the state with the provisio 
that he remain living there in an apartment for his lifetime. The then-president Mary Robinson accepted a symbolic key from him at a ceremony at Emo, and the estate passed into the care of the Office of Public Works. Given how frequently Chomley Harrison and Elizabeth talked with each other, does Father Harper think that perhaps she was influenced by his own donation to the public good when considering what she might eventually do with her own wealth? I think it may well have been the other way around, he says. She may have influenced him. That is what I think, but that is just my own speculation. Elizabeth, who was fluent in French, had bought a house in Billac, a village in central France. She went there every year for at least three months for many years. There is a note among her papers which states, I wish to be buried in France with my parents should I die on French territory. Another expressed her wish to be buried with her husband should she die in Ireland. As a person of devout faith her entire life and who attended Mass daily whenever possible, she was dismayed when the village church ceased its daily Mass service due to the shortage of priests and the smallness of the community. So she asked me to come out and visit her, and would I mind saying Mass in the church for the duration of the visit, Father Harper says. He did this. The place where she lived in France was very small, and the train didn't usually stop there because it was more of a siding, but it stopped for her, he recalls. She was a benefactress of the village in the same quiet way she was to many others. In the course of conversations about Elizabeth, I heard stories of her generosity over the years. A new car to an old friend, a mobility buggy to an ageing friend who found it a challenge to get about, donations for upkeep of churches. It wasn't just her money she was generous with, but her time. She was a Eucharistic minister. She regularly volunteered with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution on days when they were collecting from the public. Before Emo went into state ownership, she collected the modest fee charged to view its gardens on Sundays. She carefully kept the copy of the Irish Times of 1945, which carried the notice of her engagement and remained a reader of this paper all her life. The diary entry for her 60th birthday in 1984 read, Bicycled when it cleared up to Port Arlington to buy Irish Times, a round trip of 16 kilometres. In the late 1990s, Elizabeth had successful treatment for cancer at Port Leash Hospital. In January 1999, she wrote a letter to the Leinster Express, thanking the hospital staff who had seen through her surgery. The letter continued, I query the reason why the oncology unit that was opened by the then-president, Mary Robinson, in December 1994 and bears her plaque, is not yet in use although there is already trained staff to man the unit. I know that this causes extreme hardship for patients who have to travel to Dublin for treatment. In March of that year, she wrote a broadly similar version of that letter to this newspaper, adding another paragraph. The present Minister for Health, Mr Brian Cohen, sanctioned cancer facilities to be set up at Tullamore Hospital. The facilities are already at Portleash, waiting to be put in use after four years' waiting. Seventeen years later, the Irish Cancer Society were to receive a €6 million bequest from Elizabeth, the largest single donation they have ever had. 
It took time after Emo Court passed into state ownership for the Office of Public Works to sort out the estate, but at some point, Elizabeth was given notice by them to vacate the dower house there. She would have stayed there for the rest of her life if she could, Maura says. She searched for a period house in nearby towns, somewhere that would be not too far from Emo. It also had to be of a size to accommodate the antique furniture she wished to have around her, some of which may well have come from the Leeson Street house she occupied in childhood and which she had inherited. Elizabeth Connolly became a friend of hers in the 1990s. That was the decade Elizabeth bought a Georgian house in Market Square, Stradbally, 10 kilometres from Emo, which was to be her last home. Connolly was a frequent visitor to the Stradbally house, where there were always fresh flowers. She was surrounded by family furniture in that house, and she didn't want to change any of it. She could have made things more comfortable for herself with, say, a new sofa, but she didn't want to go out and buy anything else. Connolly says it took quite a few years to get to know her because she was quite a private person. She was so gracious, friendly and kind and always interested in other people and what they were doing. But she never really volunteered any information about her own life. Connolly had no idea her friend was extraordinarily wealthy. I knew she was comfortable, but I also knew she had some bank shares and we all know what happened to Irish bank shares. I did worry about her that she would be all right as she got older because she didn't have any family I knew of. In 2005, the Leinster Leader group of newspapers was sold to British regional newspaper group Johnston Press for €138.6 million. Elizabeth had inherited her shares in the group from her late husband, who had in turn inherited them from his first wife. At the time of the sale, she was the largest shareholder owning 140,000 shares. She had been what's known as a silent shareholder, not getting involved in the day-to-day running of the business beyond attending the group's annual general meeting. She made over €30 million from her portion of the shares. Or rather, as she said to me once, it was more like €20 million when the taxman had been paid, Father Harper says. That December, Elizabeth anonymously gifted a sum of €3,000 to each staff member of the Leinster Leader, the maximum amount that could be received as a gift before accruing tax. At Christmas, she was toasted in absentia by the new staff there at a gathering, who suspected their unexpected windfall had come from her, although she never publicly admitted it. Elizabeth's last will and testament was drawn up on 15 September 2008, when she was 84, one year older than her aunt Annette Sykes had been at the time of her death. Her old friend, Chomley Daring Chomley Harrison, who had left Emo Court to the state, had died in July of that year, aged 99. By then, the Dower House, Elizabeth's former home there, had been turned into a cafe. Less than two months after Chomley Harrison's death, she signed her will with the same distinctive cursive flourishes she had already displayed when writing the diaries she had kept long before while a young girl living at 39 Lower Leeson Street. By then, her name had been published in the media reports of the sale of the group. Word filtered down among the residents of Stradbally that there was a millionaire among their midst, that it was the quiet, reserved woman in her 80s living in the distinctive house on Market Square 
who always did her modest grocery shopping using a wicker basket. You'd know by her appearance that she was a lady, Sylvester Phelan, who owns the grandstand newsagent and grocery in Stradbally, recalls of his former customer. She always had her hair up very elegantly in a bun. It was known she was wealthy, but nobody really knew anything much about her life. She came in here from time to time, says Mark MacDonnell, who is behind the counter at Fairies Butchers. We are very proud of her in Stradbally. It was an amazing thing to do, to leave all that money to such important charities. It's rare that people are so unselfish. In her latter years, Elizabeth was attended by carers at her home and did not go out much. When she died on 11 December 2016, there were few people at her funeral. The Book of Condolence provided by the Undertakers for Mourners is held at Maynooth and holds the 41 signatures. She was buried at Moy Glare Cemetery in Maynooth, County Kildare, beside her late husband. In October, the news broke about her charitable donations. We were all shocked at the amount of her fortune, says Elizabeth Connolly. But I thought it was just the kind of thing Elizabeth would do, trying to help charitable foundations that would benefit from her money. Father Harper knew that Elizabeth was leaving money to charity, but I did not expect the amount. The reason she waited to leave her bequests is because she did not want the notoriety of making these magnificent donations in her lifetime, he says. If she did something for you, she would let you thank her, but just once. She hated fuss. Elizabeth had the courtesy and style of a bygone age. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.